Leash is one of Ireland's true hidden gems. Its beautiful rolling countryside is steeped in folklore, myths and legends, and it is home to some of Ireland's most fascinating heritage sites that span centuries of Irish history. Our guide will help you to explore this beautiful county, and we'll visit some wonderful historical sites as we tell you the story of Leash. We'll begin our journey in the southwest of the county, in the village of Dunamore. Here we will discover a 19th century workhouse and hear poignant stories of the harsh and desperate life of the poor in County Leash during the harrowing years of the aftermath of the Great Famine. Our journey starts in the southwest of the county, in the village of Dunamore. To reach Dunamore, exit at Junction 21 on the M7 motorway or Junction 3 on the M8 motorway and follow the signs. The Dunamore Workhouse and Agricultural Museum is situated on the OR 435 road between Rathdowney and Boris and Ossery. Here at Dunamore, you can see the rooms of an Irish workhouse, almost exactly as they appeared in the late 1800s. The Dunamore Workhouse was built to house the most poverty-stricken people of County Leash. It was completed in 1853 and was paid for by a tax on local property owners. The workhouse was deliberately made as unattractive as possible, so that it would only be used as a last resort and its only residents would be those who had nowhere else to turn. Workhouses like this were built right across Ireland under the poor law relief system as part of the government's response to deal with rural poverty. People who entered the workhouse suffered the ultimate shame. Once inside, they gave up their clothes and put on rough workhouse uniforms. Families were split apart and were not allowed to stay together. There were separate dormitories for boys, girls, men and women. Children from the age of two were taken from their mothers and sent to live with either the boys or girls. Living conditions were grim. Inmates slept on rough mattresses of straw, covered with rags. The only toilet facilities were large buckets in the centre of the dormitories. Inmates worked at tasks during the day, then ate their meals in total silence. Food was of poor quality and consisted of thin gruel and bread and rations were small. Workhouses were often overcrowded, which meant that disease spread rapidly and deaths were commonplace. There is a graveyard behind the workhouse where inmates were buried. By the time the Dunamore workhouse opened, many of the poorest of the area had already perished or emigrated in the wake of the Great Famine. The workhouse was probably only operational for a few years before it closed in 1886. In the early 1920s, during the War of Independence, British forces used the buildings as a barracks. Then, in 1927, the Dunamore Cooperative Society adapted the workhouse to serve local farmers. A creamery was established to assist farmers with the production and sale of butter. It was producing 400,000 gallons of milk the following year. In the 1960s, Dunamore amalgamated with other cooperatives to form Avonmore, now part of Glanbia. In 1988, a committee was formed to develop the former workhouse as a museum. Part of the building was leased to the community as a place to tell the history of the area. Today, committed volunteers bring that history to life through the Dunamore Workhouse and Agricultural Museum. 
The Agricultural Museum contains a whole range of farming implements that were used on the land in the days gone by. The building that housed the kitchen and dining hall of the workhouse was recently conserved with the assistance of Leash Partnership and further tells the story of life inside the workhouse. When you are ready, please leave Dunamore and head north along the Ore 435 into Barisanasari. Turn right onto the Ore 445 and continue on this road through the village. After leaving Barisanasari, turn right again onto the Ore 434. Travel about six kilometres along this road to our next stop, Ahabo Abbey. The name Ahabo means field of the cow, and this small village has a history of ecclesiastical activity dating back almost 1,500 years. An early Christian monastic settlement was founded here around 577 AD by Saint Canis. The monastery of Ahabo became a major centre of learning, commerce and agriculture. In the early 700s, an abbot from Ahabo, Saint Virgilius, also known as Saint Fergal, travelled through Europe and was appointed Bishop of Salzburg in modern-day Austria. Virgilius was renowned for his knowledge of geography and astronomy, but he almost fell foul of the church authorities because he believed, contrary to church doctrine of the time, that the world was round. In the closing centuries of the first millennium, wealthy, prosperous abbeys like Ahabo became the target of raids and attacks, and the historical records or annals note that it was raided and burned on at least two occasions, in 913 and 1116. After the original early medieval monastery was burned, the Augustinian Priory was founded here in 1234. However, this priory was not immune to attacks as Ahabo was an important strategic stronghold in Leash. You can still see a large fortification in the field north of the abbey. What remains today is the tree-covered mound of a Norman Mott and Bailey. The Norman leader Strongbow granted the land here to Adam de Hereford in 1172 and the Mott dates from his time. The Normans would have built a wooden tower on top of this steep-sided mound of earth where they could store their arms and from which they could keep a lookout for potential attackers. One such attack came in 1346 from the native Irish MacGillaforic clan. The burning of the abbey was an unfortunate and probably accidental outcome of this raid. After the Augustinian abbey was burned, a third monastic foundation was established at Ahabo. A Dominican friary was founded in 1382 by Fingen MacGillaforic, Lord of Ossery. The ruins of the abbey church which have been conserved by the local community still stand. The abbey contains a beautifully carved three-light window in the east wall, as well as a carved piscina, a niche in the wall for washing church vessels. Monks would have entered through the doorway in the north wall, which led from the cloister. The doorway in the west wall, through which the public would have entered the church, dates from the Middle Ages. Like monasteries across Ireland, Ahabo was suppressed by Henry VIII in the Reformation of the 1540s. Behind the ruins of the Dominican Abbey, there is an Anglican Church of Ireland, which is still used as a place of worship. This church was built in the 1700s, on the site of the earlier 13th century Augustinian Priory. This church appears to contain some fragments of that medieval structure. The belfry tower at the northwest corner of the church dates to the 13th century 
and has been refaced and modified over time. Medieval stone heads are visible over the doorway of the church, and some of the windows date from the medieval period and may have been taken from the 14th century Dominican Abbey. When you are ready, leave Ahabo, head east along the Or 434 for about 12 kilometers to our next stop, Duro. The great oak forest that once covered ancient Ireland gave Duro its name, which comes from Dharma Unuach, or the oak plain of the people, known as the Ee Duach. In the early 1200s, the Normans adapted that name to Duro when they founded a borough on the Erkina River, a tributary of the Nor. The land was made in Episcopal manner of the Bishop of Ossory. This small self-governed settlement was so successful that in 1245, King Henry III granted Geoffrey de Turville, Bishop of Ossory, the right to hold a yearly fair in Duro as well as a market every Thursday. After the Reformation, Duro came under the control of the powerful Duke of Ormond. He retained Duro as part of County Kilkenny, which was his own power base. And it was only in the 1840s and following an act of Parliament that Duro returned to County Leash. The way Duro looks today is largely due to the Flower family, also known as Viscounts Ashbrook, who gained ownership of the town in the early 1700s. They planned and developed a new estate town and granted permits for many of the fine Georgian and Victorian houses that still line Durrow's streets. Castle Durrow is their most significant legacy and was constructed between 1712 and 1716. Built in a style known as Queen Anne, it is a massive, solid structure, but also elegant and charming. Castle Durrow is now a hotel, and its castellated entrance is a notable landmark in Durrow Square. Over the next two centuries, Duro prospered. Stagecoaches rattled over the bridge and stopped at the nearby coach house. Local businesses sprang up, including a brewery, a flour mill, a malting enterprise and a factory that made high-quality bricks and tiles. North of the bridge, the mill wall amenity area tells the story of the flour mill, which operated in Duro for over two centuries. Years of development meant that by 1926, only a fraction of Duro's forests remained. In recent years, local people have worked to preserve Duro's beautiful setting, as well as its architecture. Today, visitors can enjoy woodland walks as well as strolls down Duro's fine streets. There are two national waymarked walks, the Leafy Loop and the Dunmore Loop, which bring walkers along riverbanks through forests and farmland. From Duro, Take the N77 south in the direction of Kilkenny. After travelling for approximately 1.7 kilometres, turn left at the signpost for Atana. Drive one and a half kilometres to Atana village, and when you reach the village centre, turn left. Our next stop, the Irish Fly Fishing and Game Shooting Museum, is on your left. The Irish Fly Fishing and Game Shooting Museum explores 300 years of hunting and fishing in Ireland. It's a treat for anyone interested in country life. The museum was founded in 1986 by Walter Phelan, who comes from a family devoted to fishing. He has restored and adapted a traditional farmhouse to house a collection of vintage rods, reels, guns, 
tackle, tools and specimens of birds and fish. Exhibits tell the stories of hunting and fishing. They show ingenious devices, such as hollowed cow horn, used to hold mayflies for fishing, made by ordinary people who hunted and fished to supplement their diets. One interesting aspect of the museum is the large collection of fishing flies, some of which date to the early 1800s. These are made from bright coloured feathers which were collected by sailors who travelled to far off and exotic lands. Fishermen found that salmon and other fish were much more likely to go for bait which is made from brightly coloured foreign feathers rather than dull Irish feathers. The museum also displays the exquisite guns, rods and tackle used by the well-to-do, who hunted and fished for sport. An entire room is dedicated to Garnets and Keegans, an Irish firm that supplied fine fishing and hunting equipment worldwide. Perhaps the most gruesome artefacts are three pieces that were used to hunt people. These man traps were used on large estates in the late 1700s to dissuade poachers. Those who got caught in such traps usually escaped, but their wounds often became infected and turned gangrenous, leading to death. Visitors to the museum can enter a reconstructions of a gamekeeper's room from the 1800s and a gunsmith's workshop from about 1900. Other displays are housed in the fishing and game shooting room, the trophy room, the clay pigeon room, the boathouse and the hatching room. An ever-expanding library contains information on all aspects of fishing and hunting in Ireland. From the museum, head north along the road and turn right at the next junction. This will bring you to the village of Ballinac Hill. Turn left onto the main street of the village and continue for about 1.5 kilometres until you reach the gates of our next stop, Haywood Gardens on your right. Located just north of Ballinakill village, Haywood Gardens is the site of two garden types. The great park created by Frederick Trench in the late 1700s and the small interlocked formal gardens created by Sir Edwin Lutchins and Gertrude Jekyll in the early 1900s. After Trench built Haywood House in 1773, he landscaped the area between his house and the village of Ballinakill. Inspired by his grand tour of Europe, Trench moved hills, dug lakes, planted trees and built follies. His results were considered to be the most exquisite romantic landscape of their time. Trench himself was a noted architect and engineer and was a friend of renowned architect James Gandon. He named Haywood after his mother-in-law, Mary Haywood of County Tyrone. Haywood passed through various families during the 19th century as a result of intermarriage eventually coming into the possession of the Poes. It welcomed many visitors, none more important than the Empress Elizabeth of Austria in 1870. In the early 1900s, Colonel Hutchinson Poe hired the eminent architect Sir Edwin Lutchins to create formal gardens around Haywood House. Lutchins is considered one of the greatest British architects and amongst other projects, designed New Delhi in India. The gardens were probably landscaped by Gertrude Jekyll. Like many aristocratic families, the Poes left Ireland following political independence and the house was acquired by the Silesian Order in 1941. Unfortunately, it was destroyed by fire in 1950 and demolished. 
Thankfully, the gardens survive and are amongst the best examples of Lutchen's work in Ireland. The formal gardens contrast with breathtaking views of the landscape. A walk lined with pollarded lime trees leads to a formal terrace overlooking the surrounding countryside. Another terrace overlooks one of the lakes dug by Trench in the 1700s, where it is possible to spot moorhens, kingfishers and other water birds. In the sunken garden, circular terraces descend to an elliptical pool where small statues of turtles gaze inquisitively at the grand fountain. On the top level, a loggia, roofed with red tiles, includes an inscription taken from the writings of Alexander Pope. In the wall that surrounds the garden, each circular window frames a spectacular view of the landscape so carefully constructed by Frederick Trench. A modern secondary school, Haywood Community College, is now built in the grounds of the garden. From Haywood Gardens, drive north on the OR 432 for about six kilometres to our next stop, Abbey Leaks. The original town of Abbey Leaks developed near the River Nore, southwest of the current town, on the site of a 12th century Cistercian monastery. The monks had been granted land by Conor O'Moore, King of Leash. The monastery was later suppressed by King Henry VIII. In 1562, Queen Elizabeth granted the Abbey and associated lands to Thomas Butler, Earl of Ormond. Over the next century, the village grew to contain 52 families. However, regular flooding from the River Nore made the town an unhealthy place to live. The fortunes of Abbey Leaks changed dramatically following the arrival of the de Vesey family in the early 18th century. They acquired the Abbey Leaks estate through the marriage of Sir Thomas Vesey to Mary Muschamp in 1699. In the 1770s, Thomas, the first Viscount of Vesey, decided to relocate the town away from the river. A new planned town developed over the following decades, defined by a long, straight main thoroughfare and broad central market area. Abbey Leaks prospered in its new location and by 1837 had grown to 140 houses. Local farmers traded at the market house and business premises lined its crescent. The main industries included flour mills, a brewery and a factory that made high-quality carpets used all over the world, including on the luxury liner Titanic. The de Vessies were well known for their benevolence and charity. Lady de Vessie looked after poor widows in the almshouse on Temperance Street. The destitute were admitted to the workhouse, which opened in 1842. The family put a strong emphasis on education, and at one point there were eight schools in Abbey Leaks, many of them sponsored by the de Vesey family. Today, Abbey Leaks is a treasure trove of architecture from the 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries. Visitors can admire the fine period buildings that still stand here. They include the Church of Ireland, with its beautiful stained glass windows, the Market House, which is now a public library, and Pembroke Terrace, built in the Tudor Revival style. Those wanting to learn more about life in the mid-1800s can visit the restored Sexton's House. Other notable features are the Methodist Meeting House, the Catholic Church and the numerous fountains. Abbey League's Bog, south of the town, is managed by the local community and its unique habitats can be explored on foot. 
For the full story of the town, please visit the Tourist Information Centre and Museum in Abilique's Heritage House in the Old North School. From Abilique's, take the OR430, eastwards in the direction of Carlow. Three and a half kilometres from Abilique's, turn left at the crossroads and drive seven and a half kilometres to our next stop, Timahoe Round Tower. The beautiful medieval monastic site of St. Makua stands on the right-hand side of the road as you enter the village from Abbey Leaks. A religious community was founded here by St. Makua in around 600, and the name Timahoe comes from the Irish Timahua, or Makua's house. Makua was a warrior who changed his ways and converted to Christianity. Like many holy men of the time, he led a hermetic life of prayer and contemplation. There is a beautiful sculpture standing in the grounds of this site which reflects the sanctity of Makua, entitled Makua's Desk. It depicts the three pets of Saint Makua who were recorded in a famous story about him. A rooster who woke him, a mouse who nibbled his ear if he fell asleep while praying, and a fly that stopped at the very word Makua stopped on when reading his prayers. This sculpture, created by local sculptor Michael Burke, was commissioned by the local primary school. The Round Tower at Timahoe is one of the most impressive round towers in the country. An extraordinary Romanesque carved doorway makes this the most elegant round tower in Ireland. Carvings of human heads with flowing beards and moustaches decorate the main entrance, about five metres above ground level. Smaller carvings decorate a second-storey window. No one knows why the monks at Timahoe carved such a beautiful doorway. Perhaps they may have used it to display a sacred relic to pilgrims, or the elegant decoration could reflect the monastery buildings that have disappeared from the site. Timahoe Round Tower was built sometime in the 1100s. It rises almost 30 metres high and is more than 17 metres wide at its base. Its walls are nearly 2 metres thick. Inside there are five different floors, which were reached by ladders. Round towers are unique to Ireland and are something of a national symbol. Historians have long debated the purpose of round towers. The name in Irish, Clicciach, means bell house and indicates that their primary function was as belfries. Bells would be rung to call the monks to prayer at various times during the day. These tall, slender structures also made it easy for travellers to find the monastery and were symbols of prestige and wealth. However, Towers may also have had a defensive function. They could be used as lookouts to warn people if an attack was imminent. The tower stands in a lovely setting across a footbridge that crosses the Bawthog River. Nearby, the former Church of Ireland was used for many years as a library and is now a community-run heritage centre. Also on this site, a ruined 17th-century castle contains elements of a 15th-century church. From Timahoe, take the OR426 north for approximately 4 kilometres and turn right onto the OR427. Drive a further 5 kilometres along this road to our next stop, Stradbally. The Steam Museum is located opposite the green in the centre of the village. The Stradbally Steam Museum celebrates the steam engines that once ruled Ireland's railways, built its roads and worked its farms. 
Inside the museum, visitors can see a variety of steam-driven engines. The collection includes the Mann steam cart, built in 1918. This small steam traction engine cleared and ploughed land. The Fowler, another steam traction engine built in 1936, was used in roadworks and to power stone crushers. Also on display is an elegant black steam engine commissioned by engineer Sam Gagan in 1912. This small engine hauled raw materials around a track inside the Guinness Brewery. It took barrels of stout to the wharf on the Liffey, where they were put on boats and taken throughout the world. Also on display is a Land Rover fire engine, which was stationed at Stradbally Fire Station in approximately 1950. Not far from the Steam Museum, the Steam Preservation Society operates a narrow gauge heritage railway in the grounds of Stradbally Hall. This track, about one kilometre long, was built between 1969 and 1982 by volunteers. As with the feeder railways of rural Ireland, which once linked into the main railway lines, the gauge or width of this track is three feet. The steam locomotive that pulls the train was constructed for Bordnamona in 1949. Rides on the narrow gauge railway are available to the public on bank holiday Sundays and Mondays from May to September. A trip along this track recalls a different and bygone era, before the motor car, when railways crisscrossed Ireland and were the most important mode of transport for goods and people. Each August bank holiday weekend, the Society hosts a steam rally in the grounds of Stradbally Hall where enthusiasts travel from all over the country to show off their engines. Stradbally is also the venue for the annual Electric Picnic Festival, which features top international music acts, as well as arts, crafts, entertainments and many family-friendly activities. From Stradbally, take the N80 northeastwards in the direction of Port Leash. After four kilometres, turn right when you see the signpost for our next stop, the Rock of Dunamace. Stunning views of the surrounding countryside make the towering Rock of Dunamace a strategic place to build a fortress. Through the centuries, warriors have fought to control this limestone outcrop, which forms such a formidable natural defence. Many people believe that Dunamis appeared on a map of Ireland in the 2nd century AD, produced by Greek geographer Ptolemy. But the first known settlement on the rock was Dune Mask, an early Christian settlement that was pillaged in 842 by the Vikings. A small silver penny from the 9th century, which features the image of Egbert, King of Wessex, was found here during archaeological excavations in the 1990s. When the Anglo-Normans arrived in Ireland in the late 1100s, Dunamace became the most important Anglo-Norman fortification in Leash. It was part of the Dowry of Aoife, who was the daughter of Dermot MacMurrah. He was King of Leinster and made a deal with an Anglo-Norman knight called Strongbow. Aoife was given in marriage to Strongbow as part of that deal. Strongbow appointed another Anglo-Norman lord, Myler Fitzhenry, to the region and it was Fitzhenry who began the work to refortify the site and build a castle here. When Isabel, the daughter of Strongbow and Aoife, wed William Marshall, the Earl of Pembroke, Myler was forced to hand over the castle and rebelled in fury. Marshall, 
who was referred to at the time as the greatest knight that ever lived, won the day and carried out further building on the rock when he lived there between 1208 and 1213. The castle was successfully held by Marshall's five sons before passing to the Mortimer family through Marshall's daughter, Eva, who passed the castle to her daughter, Maud, on her marriage to Roger Mortimer. All the Mortimer lands, including Dunamace, were forfeited to the crown in 1330. Shortly afterwards, the castle appears to have passed into the hands of the O'Moores and abandoned. Local tradition has it that the castle was besieged and blown up by the Cromwellian generals Hewson and Reynolds in 1651. While there are no contemporary records of these events, it is certainly one plausible explanation for the ruinous state of the castle as we see it today. In 1795, Sir John Purnell, Chancellor of the Irish Parliament and great-grandfather of famed politician Charles Stuart Purnell, tried to develop a residence and banqueting hall at Dunamace. All the late medieval features such as windows and doors were taken from other ruins and added to the castle at this time. When Purnell died, his son allowed the buildings to fall into decay. Today the ruins on the rock of Dunamace are managed by the state. Archaeological excavation and conservation work by the Office of Public Works have ensured that the Rock of Dunamace will survive for future generations to explore. From Dunamace, rejoin the N80 and head northwards towards Port Leash. At the first roundabout, take the third exit, signposted M7. Continue on this road for about one kilometre, then join the M7 motorway travelling towards Dublin. Travel on the motorway for 5 kilometres. Exit the motorway at junction 15 towards Mount Melick and Port Arlington. At the next roundabout, take the first exit onto the OR 455. After about one kilometre, take the second exit onto the OR 422, signposted Emo. Follow signs for our next stop, Emo Court. Emo Court is a country villa designed by architect James Gandon, best known for his great public buildings, including the Custom House and the Four Courts in Dublin. It recalls an era when the Anglo-Irish Protestant ascendancy was at its height and the so-called big houses dominated the Irish rural landscape. The house is a magnificent example of the neoclassical style, reflecting the architecture of ancient Greece and Rome. Amongst the most notable features are the portico with its ionic pillars, the octagonal entrance hall and the rotunda with its high domed roof. The house is surrounded by beautiful gardens and parkland, which were first laid out in the 18th century and contained formal lawns, a lake and woodland walks with many very fine trees and shrubs. With a domain of over 4,500 hectares, Emo Court was the second largest enclosed estate in Ireland after the Phoenix Park in Dublin. Gandon designed Emo Court in 1790 for John Dawson, the first Earl of Port Arlington. The Earl died during the 1798 rebellion when he caught pneumonia while guarding French prisoners in County Mayo. As a result, the house remained incomplete. He was succeeded by his son, the second Earl, who carried out some work in the 1830s. During this phase, the garden was completed and work commenced on the interior. 
but the Earl's financial difficulties prevented further progress. Starting in 1860, the third Earl oversaw building of the Copper Dome on the Rotunda, as well as work on the interior and construction of a bachelor wing. Emo Court was a setting for many lavish social events during the second half of the 19th century. When the last of the Port Arlingtons left Emo Court in 1920 and the estate was sold to the Irish Land Commission, the house fell into decline. The Jesuits purchased the house in 1930 and used it as a seminary, ensuring that it did not fall into decay like similar houses around Ireland. The noted Jesuit photographer, Father Frank Brown, who took over 40,000 photos documenting Irish life, lived here from 1930 to 1957. There is a fascinating exhibition of Father Brown's work currently on display in Emo Court. In 1969, the order sold Emo Court to Major Chomley Harrison, who began the laborious process of restoring the house and its grounds. He succeeded in restoring the gardens and reinstating many of the important architectural features of Emo Court, some of which had been carefully removed and put in storage by the Jesuits. He even found pieces of marble columns that had been dismantled by the Jesuits and scattered throughout the gardens. In 1994, he donated the house and gardens to the state. Today, Emo Court is managed by the Office of Public Works. A tea room operates in the Dower House. The house is open to the public in the summer months and the gardens are open all year round. When you are ready, leave Emo. Take the Ore 422 North for about one and a half kilometres and then turn right onto the Ore 419 and drive for about six kilometres to our next stop, Port Arlington. For part of the late 17th and early 18th century, Port Arlington was the Paris of the Midlands, a place where French rather than Irish or English was spoken on the streets. French Huguenots escaping persecution in their native land shaped the culture and the architecture of this bustling Midlands town. Before this, the town was known as Cool and Tudere, the nook of the tanner, a reference to the leather working that took place at this bend of the river Barrow. This area was a stronghold of the O'Dempsey clan, who lost their lands following their participation in the Confederate Wars of the 1640s. Port Arlington was founded in 1666 by Henry Bennett, Lord Arlington, on land located in a bend of the River Barrow. Bennett had hoped to set up Port Arlington as a market town in the English style. However, the settlement failed, and he later sold the lands to Sir Patrick Trant a supporter of James II. After William of Orange defeated James II at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, the lands, including Port Arlington, were seized by the Crown. Henri Massou, Marquis de Rouvigny, Earl of Galway and later Baron of Port Arlington, served in the court of Louis XIV at Versailles, but because he was a Huguenot, he was forced to leave following the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, which eliminated the right to practice his religion. Huguenots were French and Flemish Protestants who fled France following this new wave of religious persecution. One woman, Madame de Champagne, hid herself and her children in wine casks to make their escape from the French port of La Rochelle. Rouvigny, 
had become influential in the court of William and Mary, and though he had never been to Port Arlington, he decided to offer the town as a refuge to Huguenots. By 1702, 500 Huguenots lived in Port Arlington. Some were minor aristocrats who traditionally entered military service. Life was tough initially for these religious refugees, many of whom were elderly war veterans, but they soon put down roots in the town. Their trading was a boost to the town, and a vibrant community spread into Offaly and the surrounding countryside. Port Arlington became known for its public classical schools, where the children of a well-to-do families were taught the French manners considered desirable in ladies and gentlemen. The French language was spoken in parts of Port Arlington up until the early 19th century, and education and some religious services were conducted through French. However, the Huguenot population dwindled as some of them left and others intermarried and assimilated. The French church they founded was eventually converted to the Church of Ireland. In the early 1700s, the town came under control of Ephraim Dawson, whose descendants became Earls of Port Arlington and built Emo Court. The Dawsons developed Port Arlington as a planned estate town and the market house in the main square is testament to this. Today visitors can view houses built in the Huguenot style on French Church Street and Patrick Street. Not far from Port Arlington are the ruins of Lee Castle, a 13th century Norman fortress that changed hands many times in its violent history, until the mid-1600s when Cromwell's troops finally destroyed it. From Port Arlington, take the Ore 423 southwest to our next stop, Mount Melick. Once known as the Manchester of Ireland, Mount Melick is a town of fine buildings and the home of a uniquely Irish textile art, Mount Melick Work. Although the name Mount Melick sounds of English origin, it actually comes from the Irish, Moyntoch Melick, which means the boggy land by the river. The foundation of the town was laid by members of the Society of Friends, also known as Quakers, who were known for their industriousness, but were subjected to religious persecution in 17th century England. In 1659, William Edmondson settled in Mount Melick and started a tannery. Other Quakers set up malting, brewing, spinning and weaving enterprises. Weaving became one of the town's major industries. By the mid-1700s, Mount Melick was a leading centre of textile production in Ireland. Pims was the town's main industrial firm. Its enterprises included malting, brewing, baking, tanning, and the manufacture of glue, snuff, and candles, as well as wholesale and retail businesses. Mount Melick experienced a boom in 1836, when a branch of the Grand Canal opened, linking the town with markets throughout Ireland and beyond. The first modern sugar factory in Ireland opened here in 1852. At its height in the 19th century, there were 27 industries in the town and the population was up to 8,000. Industrial employment was important in supplementing agricultural incomes. Like many parts of Ireland, Mount Melick and its hinterland were badly affected by the Great Famine, when both population and employment fell. The rich architectural heritage of Mount Melick tells the story of the town's growth. The oldest surviving dwelling is John Pym's house on Harbour Street, built in 1686. 
Other fine houses from the 1700s reflect the wealth of the town's first merchants. A number of houses on Lord Edward Street were built in the 1800s for the staff of the Grand Canal Company. The Georgian Square in the town centre is a fine example of this kind of architecture. Mount Melick work, a white-on-white embroidery technique, was invented in the early 1800s by Joanna Carter, wanting to give Irish women a way to earn money. She set up a small school in Mount Melick to train them in this craft. Mount Melick gained an international reputation for its lace embroidery, producing decorative pieces for dressing table mats, night dresses and comb and brush bags. Like many industrial towns, many of Mount Melick's enterprises went into decline towards the end of the 19th century. Today, a fine community-run museum displays examples of Mount Melick work. From Mount Melick, take the Ore 423 southeast to Mount Rath. From Mount Rath, take the Ore 440 northwest. Turn left off this road after about four kilometers and follow the signs to the village of Camrus. And our final stop, the Poet's Cottage. The Poet's Cottage is located in the foothills of the Schlieve Bloom Mountains, which dominate the northeastern part of the county. This replica thatched cottage gives visitors a sense of what daily life must have been like for most people in rural Ireland in the 1800s. Ireland's cottages evolved over centuries. While each community had its own variations, most cottages were one storey high and one room wide. The windows and doors were located on the front and back of the building, with a chimney stack along the roof. The walls of the cottage were built of local stone or mud. The roof was thatched with reeds or straw, and the walls were usually whitewashed. Cottages like this were built in tune with the landscape, and were always built facing away from the prevailing winds to minimise drafts blowing through the building. People both worked and relaxed near the kitchen hearth. They used an iron handle known as a crane to hoist pots of food for cooking over the open fire. Near the warmth of the fire, families sewed, knitted and mended clothes and tools. Rooms beyond the hearth wall were considered to be above the kitchen, while those at the other end were below. These rooms were used as bedrooms, storerooms and occasionally as parlours. In early cottages, animals were sometimes kept in a room at one end of the cottage, while people slept in a bedroom on the other side. The cottage is named after Patrick Ryan, a poet said to have lived in Camrus in the 18th century who wrote about the natural beauty and the people of this community. The absolute simplicity of Irish cottages is what makes them beautiful. The stone walls and thatched roofs look completely at home in the countryside, just as this cottage nestles into its flower garden in the heart of Camrys. We would like to thank you for visiting Leash, and we hope you enjoyed exploring the wonderful heritage of the county. This heritage trail gives you just a flavour of many heritage sites you can find in Leash. Some of the other places worth exploring include Ballamore Castle, near Boris and Ossery, a 15th century Fitzpatrick castle with a shield and a gig to ward off evil. 
This castle has been fully restored and is open to the public. You can also explore the beautifully carved Romanesque church at Kaleshin in the south of the county and of course the impressive Schlievebloom Mountains, including the walking routes at Glen Barrow. Information on these and the many other interesting sites of Leash, as well as details of activities and places to eat and stay, can be found at leashtourism.ie. This guide was produced by Abarta Audio Guides, in conjunction with Leash Tourism and Leash County Council, and with the support of Leash Partnership. If you'd like more information on the monastic sites of Leash, such as Timahoe and Ahabo, you can download the Leash Monastic Trail audio guide from our website. On the same website, you will also find our audio guides to some of the towns of Leash, like Abbey Leaks, Port Arlington and Port Leash. We certainly hope that you will find time to visit the lovely county of Leash again soon. In the meantime, Gunnairi and Boherlet. May the road rise to meet you.